Hey, Faith Covenant, would you begin with prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word. I thank you personally for this opportunity to share with this community, with this family. God, we pray that your word would be in our hearts, that our hearts would be open to receive it, and that our ears would be closed to anything that is not your truth that I have to say today. Holy Spirit, be with me right now. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. I am a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. I have read all four books, The Hobbit and all three Lord of the Rings, ten times over, if not more. It was kind of a yearly habit that me and my dad have. He reads it in his deer stand when he's hunting. I do not have the opportunity to go hunting with him now, so I just read it on occasion. Um, I scoff at the casual fans who just watch the cinematic cuts, the shortened versions of The Lord of the Rings. I instead watch the two-disc editions that take sometimes hours more than the original films. In college, I had a tradition of watching through all of the Hobbit films and all of the extended Lord of the Rings editions all in one go. Which, by the way, takes about 20 hours and we had to stock up on so many snacks, so much water, and obviously bathroom breaks. But the point is, I am a huge Lord of the Rings nerd. So of course, this quote from Gandalf the Grey at the very beginning of the first film and the first book is one of the first things that came to my mind when reading 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 15, which I'm going to read for us again right now, starting in verse 8. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow to his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is in, done in it will be disclosed." Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved... While you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. While this quote touches on a very important aspect of Peter's argument in this passage, it certainly does not 
cover the full complexity of what Peter is getting at. Uh, Peter, in this passage, not only refutes the argument of scoffers, seen earlier in the chapter, chapter 3, but sets forth an integral theology of what holiness is. And he explains in depth to us God's redemptive purpose. And so as we dive deeply into the meaning and the application of 2 Peter 3, I think it's really important that we have the same attitude as we would when we're touching anything that smells even vaguely apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic meaning a genre of literature that refers to the end of the time or the destruction of the world, the end of the world as we know it. We see this in the book of Revelation, in Daniel, and all throughout the Bible. So as we dive deeply into this meaning, it, I want to set aside what this passage is not primarily about so that we don't get distracted. So first, this passage is not pre primarily about predicting the parousia, of predicting Jesus' second coming, his second advent. Although many scholars or religious leaders like to take passages like this one or other ones elsewhere in the Bible and kind of try and predict when Jesus will come or after what period he will come, that's not what this is about. We, we're not supposed to comb this passage and every other passage and compile and create some conflagrated holy algebra problem. That's not what this passage is about. We are simply to understand that God's time is different than ours. The second thing that I want to set aside is that this primarily is not primarily about, this passage is not primarily about how we can know who is and who is not going to make it into heaven. In my experience, the Protestant evangelical streams, and I'm sure there's other streams of Christianity that fall into this trap, but I only know the Protestant evangelical stream. Uh, we, we tend to spend way too much time picking apart, co combining, contorting passages like this one until we feel that we have biblical proof, solid proof, that we are the people who are going into heaven and a clear picture of who will not be there with us. Don't get me wrong. Heaven and hell are a very real thing. And there will be a very real judgment of all persons living and dead, but we should not use this passage to pass our own fallible judgment on others based on our limited perception of their outward behavior or disposition. So with those two hot topics just kind of shoved off to the side, Let's proceed with open ears to what God has to say to us through the words of Peter. And I think the first thing we should do is pick back up with good old Gandalf the Grey. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. You, you see, Peter, right before this passage, does a few things. He first acknowledges that Jesus' first advent marked the beginning of the end of of the world, the last days. And he also talks about how Jesus' second advent will mark the end of this time of grace, the end of the end. Peter then predicts and acknowledges scoffers, who he references in this passage, and, and they will be self-indulgent cynics, asking, where is Jesus now? Did he not say that he was coming back soon? Generations have come, 
Generations have gone, people have been born, people have died, and he's still not back. He must have, been for, he must have forgotten or he never existed in the first place. He was never God. And finally, Peter reminds us to remember the words of the holy prophets predicting the Messiah's first coming. These passages all seem to culminate in, in Peter's sta statement in verse 9 that says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but he is patient with you. So this is our first point. God is not late. He is patient. Not only is God being patient, he is being patient with us, with the church. Why? Why do we need his patience? Do we not cry out in our darkest moments with all our heart, our mind, our body, our soul, Lord, come back to us? That is true. But God is patient because there is a very real and an imminent day of judgment which is inextricably tied to Jesus' second advent. It is on this day, according to Peter, that everything that is done on the earth will be disclosed. And in the same breath that Peter tells us that everything that is done on the earth will be laid bare, he reminds us to be holy, thus seemingly asking us, are you ready? This question feels most apparent when Peter describes the day of the Lord coming as a thief. It will be unexpected. It will catch us off guard. And it will change our lives. On, on a somewhat lighter note, this reminds me of the Christmas season for myself. You see, I'm really close in age and, and in relationship with my cousins on my mom's side. They're all kind of the same age as me and my four younger siblings. And so we've always gotten along really well. They live in Nebraska, so we don't get to see them a lot, but they come on Christmas. And so there's a little bit of a tradition that we developed when we were kids, when our cousins would visit, that we would each try to surprise each other. And I'll admit that it sounds silly telling you now because... In retrospect, we knew exactly when they were coming, and they knew ex that we knew when they were coming. But still, we tried, to, we tried to catch them off guard, to surprise each other, to create some sort of excitement, right? So this happened one time when my uncle drove down our driveway instead of my grandparents' driveway, where they normally arrived, turned off his lights, pulled on in real quiet-like, and we didn't have any clue that they were there until all of a sudden the doors burst open and they're going, surprise, we're here. And with smiles and hugs, we received them. It was amazing. So we, we retaliated the next year and many years after that by going to my grandparents' house where they were going to arrive. And when we saw them coming, which was usually very late at night, way past our bedtime, we would hide behind chairs, behind couches, behind curtains, and just sit and wait. And we'd hear them arrive. And we'd hear them walk around and look for us and yell out our names, thinking we'd be there. But there's no car in the driveway. We made sure of that. And until once we thought they knew we weren't there, we popped out with our surprise and we're here. Uh, this is, I mention this because this is one very important aspect of God's imminent return. We know it's coming, but we don't really know when. 
So it's important at this point that we pause and acknowledge the context of our passage as well. This is the deeper note. You see, apocalyptic literature as a genre, and this letter in particular, it's, it's written to peoples who are experiencing oppression or persecution in various forms. It's likely that this epistle originated from Rome, though we don't know for sure, and, and it probably was written to Christians in Asia Minor, just like the, the first epistle of Peter. And it was probably written between 60 and 160 AD. So for context, Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome is thought to have begun around 64 AD. So right around the time this letter was penned, mass persecution was likely happening. People were being killed or oppressed or put down for their faith. So these people are likely wondering what's going to happen. And so Peter writes as he does to remind them to hold fast that God is not late. He is patient. He will come and when he does, all the injustice that they are experiencing that we might experience in our lives, it will be exposed, it will be laid bare. All the evil that we are experiencing will be set forth before God and he will see every bit of it and he will judge them and us fairly and accordingly. There is hope in Jesus' second coming for these Christians. They must only wait. While waiting may seem to be the last thing that these Christians want to do, in the face of violence and harm coming their way. Peter reframes God's patience because God's patience is not about the continuation of injustice, although what I said before, it may sound that way. Because it's not going to be the end of Christianity. They will not kill us off. No, God's patience is our salvation. That's our second point. God's patience is our salvation. Peter transitions from these doomsday discussions uh, to vibrant verbal paintings of God's redemptive purpose. The reality that God loves this world and he is determined to redeem anything or anyone who might fall from his presence. We have seen this all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. God desires to redeem everyone and everything which has fallen from him. Jesus told us about this reality many, many, many times and in many ways. From the parable of the lost coin to that of the prodigal son, Jesus makes it clear that our relationship with our heavenly father is not one of discarding, but one of finding and reclaiming. When I was a kid, there was a house that was being built right behind ours, and it did not take long for me and my brothers to realize that the big old dumpster that was next to the house was completely unsupervised in the afternoons. So, of course, we did what you imagine we would do. We climbed up into that dumpster and threw ourselves in there amidst the sharp metal and the sharp nails and maybe some glass and all the dangers that you moms are thinking about right now, we jumped right in there and we dug with our bare hands trying to find any cool treasures we could find. And to be fair, we found a lot of things we thought were cool because everything was cool to us because everything was new and it was just all one big adventure. But there was one specific find that blew our minds 
and made our entire year. It, it was a cell phone. Again, that, that sounds silly now, but this is before everyone had cell phones just everywhere. This was a simple black flip phone, no battery, no charger or anything, but it worked perfectly for our various games that we would be playing because we could do the actual flip and pretend that we were on the phone. We kept looking in that dumpster and we kept looking, thinking we'd find another black cell phone, we'd find another toy for our games. We never found another one. So we, we ended up just having to keep fighting and arguing over that one. Jesus has explained to us so often what I want to call right now the holy dumpster dive, where God sees everything that is so wrong with us. He knows our every sinful action, intention, and even our every temptation, whether we act on it or not. He sees all of that trash, and he still jumps straight in and starts inviting us to come home with him. He calls us his, and he invites us not only to come with him, but to dig alongside him. We call this discipleship. Not only does Peter disclose God's desire for redemption, he also speaks into our own desire for redemption by asking what sort of people should we be? If everything done on the earth is going to be made known, then, then what should people see in our lives? How can we be active participants in, in redemption? How can we be a part of this holy dumpster dive? And this is the crux of Peter's string of ideas that we have followed thus far and is our third point. Our duty in the midst of patience is peace. It's at this point that Peter invites us to holiness and godliness. But when he explains what it means to live in holiness and godliness, some of us might be shocked to hear that the big finale, the amazing duty that he calls us to do, he calls us to wait. Wait? We are just made fully aware that Jesus' second advent, at, at that time, the, the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire and with all that information still in our heads, we're told to wait. Yes. Absolutely. You see, much as Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets told the Jews to wait on the Messiah, Peter is calling upon us to wait on the exact same Messiah. Jesus has been revealed to us. His victory has been secured, but it's not over yet. And until the day that Jesus returns, we are called to wait. Verse 12 says that we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. This is not a bitter or a fearful waiting. We are not waiting on an imminent judgment that will be the end of us all. No, Peter calls us into God's compelling redemptive purpose and instructs us to wait in order to be found at peace. Because the patience of the Lord is salvation. 
This wait is not one of impending doom, nor is what happens between the first advent and the second advent inconsequential. No, we are currently living out God's redemptive purpose as we live our lives now at peace right in the tension of the beginning of the end and the end of the end, instead of being overcome by anxiety, we we live in the peace of God, sharing in his patience, sharing in his patience, for that patience is our salvation. Additionally, this peace, this hastening, it is not simply about reaching the destination as fast as possible. It is not and never will be about forcing God's hand. Lately, I've been thinking about us waiting on God's patience, like taking a road trip. See, when I was a kid, road trips were fun, I guess, but they were something to get past. They were usually us going to Nebraska to see my cousins that I mentioned earlier, or we'd travel to North Carolina to visit my grandparents on my dad's side. But When we were on road trips, I remember I would try so, so hard to fall asleep and make the time go quicker. We would watch movies in our minivan and make the time go quicker. We would play games to make the time go quicker. The whole point was to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. But now that I'm older, I think I'm learning to enjoy the road trip for what it is. I definitely have not arrived here, but I'm I'm learning this and reminding myself of it right here, right now, today. The drive is not just something to get through. It is a valuable aspect of every trip in and of itself. And I think the culmination so far in my life of enjoying the journey happened in my move with Alex from Portland, Oregon, where we lived for two years, to Glen Ellen, Illinois, to here. See, we knew that this trip was a long one, and and we knew we had to drive because we didn't want to have to sell the car and buy a new car and all these other things. We wanted to drive. And so we mapped it out, we sat down, and we planned, and once we had a plan, we went for it. And so at the end of it, we spent about seven days getting from point A to point B. Now, those seven days involved us moseying along local highways down the Oregon coast till we got to the Redwood Forest in California, not taking the interstates, which would have gotten us there in a fraction of the time. Then we drove through the Redwoods, just absolutely mind-blown. We camped there. We got to see the amazing nature, God's amazing creation. We drove up to the, another highway, taking back roads. We finally got to the highway and went through the Nevada desert and trudged through all of that until we got to Colorado, in, in western Colorado, and we got to camp on top of a mesa. We got to camp on top of a mesa. It's called the, Grand, uh, the National Monument, I believe it's called. Um, and then we finally, once we were out of that amazing, beautiful nature, we visited family in Denver, we visited family in Omaha, and then we got here. To our new home. Had we taken the most direct route, stopped as little as possible, and just focused on reaching our destination, the drive would have taken 30 hours, which is easily two days of hard driving. But no, we took seven days because we wanted our coffee stops. We wanted to see the beautiful nature, the beautiful area, the atmosphere that this drive had to offer. 
We camped, we explored, we enjoyed each other, we enjoyed our road trip, and it will always be one of my favorite adventures that we've had together. Waiting for and hastening the day of God is like a road trip. Peace is enjoying the journey. So what have we talked about? What have we learned so far? Well, one, we've learned that after over 2,000 years, God is still not late. He is patient. We have discovered God's redemptive purpose, and we have been told to live holy lives in order to be found at peace by God upon his second advent. So as we continue through the season of Advent, I encourage you to live in the tension between Jesus' first and his second advent, the already and the not yet, in a way that values the journey instead of just the destination. May we live as people of peace in the midst of a chaotic and struggling world and as ambassadors of that peace to the same. And this might be as simple as carving out some time of every day to be present to yourself and to be present to God. Put yourself in a position to be found at peace with Jesus. Not just pressing forward at an exhausting pace towards whatever your latest finish line, as Pastor Nate talked about last week. Don't just go towards the latest finish line. Find activities that encourage peace with Jesus in your heart and lean into those. It could be any spiritual discipline. It could be reading your Bible, sitting in silence and meditating on the word, praying for your family, your community, or yourself. The point is to train yourself to live in the peace of God. Another important application, especially in this season, is one of community. And I know, I know that community is harder now, harder now than usual. But I also believe that there is a hidden blessing behind our newfound difficulties in communities. You see, we are in a unique point in history where we have to be intentional about community because it won't just happen to us if we're just sitting on our butts at home. We have to be intentional about it. We have to engage in the discipline of community, joining God in his redemptive purpose for not only individuals, but groups, organizations, and the like. Watching an online service doesn't fulfill this in and of itself. But it is a great place to start. A great next step is joining us in the Zoom lobby after the service. Maybe it's being a part of one of the weekly Zoom events that we have going on or initiating some different Zoom calls, phone calls, call family, call friends. Maybe go on a walk outside with masks and a huge coat because it's freaking cold outside. Go on social media. And here's, what, here's the hard part. Comment on people's posts with positivity. Don't just argue with people you dislike. Don't just comment on things that make you mad. Be positive. Be encouraging. Engage in the discipline of community in the only way we can, which is remotely. How can you step outside of your comfort zone and into the dumpster today? Who can you encourage or invite into a compelling community, promoting peace with people and with Jesus this week. 
And finally, I would encourage you to join me and to join the rest of our church community on Facebook as we journey through a daily Advent devotional, primarily from works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I have been so impressed by the many facets of Advent that have already been covered and aspects that I studied in preparation for this sermon but didn't have time or didn't have the ability to truly unpack or to cover. This is also a great discipline of community as my main encouragement to you is not to just watch the three-minute video but to comment on it and comment on other people's comments. Create community and learn more about your fellow Christians. A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And between the time of knowing Jesus is coming someday and seeing him come in finality, we are to take advantage of God's patience, which is our salvation, to live his ultimate redemptive purpose through discipling one another towards greater virtue, towards godliness, towards holiness, towards peace. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we thank you for this opportunity to live in your presence. We thank you, God, for your patience that you allow us to join in your redemptive purposes now and in the future until you come. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for your gift of your Son which we anticipate today in this season of Advent. Jesus, we ask that you would teach us more and more every day about your peace. We know that this peace is so multifaceted and there's so different, many aspects to it. There, there's disciplines, there's knowledge, there's dispositions, and there's more. God, we pray that you would open our hearts to your peace today and tomorrow, and into every tomorrow after. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you once more for being with us today. Give us your peace. Amen.